Okay, please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. That was our scripture reading this morning, and that's where we'll pick up in our lesson. Last Sunday morning, I started a sermon series on the letter of 1 John. So we looked at one sermon last week, one this week, and then one next week. John is a short letter, and I mentioned that it reads more like a poetic sermon than it does a letter. Like, it's very different than some of Paul's letters. It's written in a form called cyclical reflection. So John has a few main ideas, and then if you read through the letter in one setting, you would see those main ideas, and he just keeps circling back to those main ideas. So for this sermon series, instead of going chapter by chapter, we're looking at some of these main ideas and studying those. So last week we looked at the main idea of God's love for us and what that looks like. And how do we receive God's love for us? And this morning, we're going to talk about our need to love other people, to love the world around us, just like God does. So we receive God's love, and then we give it to others. So 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 7, he uses this phrase, beloved. He loves that word, beloved. I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard, yet I am writing you a new commandment that is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, the true light is already shining. Whoever says, I am in the light, while hating a brother or sister, is still in darkness. Whoever loves a brother or sister lives in the light, and in such a person there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates another believer is in the darkness walks in the darkness, and does not know the way to go because the darkness has brought on blindness. A man named Brandon Mooney several years ago traveled uh, to visit the church where his uncle attended, and it was an Easter Sunday, so they were putting on this big reenactment of the life and teachings of Jesus and then the crucifixion and resurrection. And this was a big production, and there was an actor who was playing Jesus, and towards the end... After he had come up out of the grave and resurrected, they had attached him to cables. So when he gives the great commission to his disciples, there's men in the back who are going to pull him up. And it's going to be this big dramatic event where he ascends into heaven and he goes back behind the curtains. So he gives the great commission, they're pulling him up, he goes behind the curtains, but then somebody in the back slipped. And Jesus came dropping back down, so it was like the second coming happened right away. And he dropped right back down. They caught him before he hit the stage, and he's just dangling in the air, and the whole audience is sitting there stunned looking at him. So the actor uh, ad-libbed, and he did it quite brilliantly, and he said, oh yeah, one more thing. Love one another. And then they pulled him back up, and then the skit was over. Now, it's a true story, and it's funny, but I think if John were to say one more thing, it would be that. Love one another. Read the Gospel of John, read 1 John, and you see how important it is that we love one another. So in chapter 2, in verse 7, John says he's not giving us a new commandment. It's one that you've heard from the beginning. It's an old commandment. It's something that you have in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament. The command to love your neighbor. You know, Jesus talks about that, and he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But in verse 8, John says... But I'm giving you a new commandment. It's this new commandment to love, and it's new because we now are supposed to love the way that Jesus loved. So it's new because the emphasis 
is new. It's the way we love that we're required to love other people the way that God loves us. In chapter 3 and verse 16, John tells us what love is. He says that he loved us because he laid his life down for us, and we ought to do that for each other. So we see in the life of Jesus that his kind of love is a self-sacrificial love, that he was willing to die for people who would be considered enemies of God. He laid down his life. Okay, we know that. We know that Jesus was a servant. He, you know, he washed his disciples' feet. That's how he loved. But if you went through the Gospels and you just looked at the daily interactions of Jesus, so we see the big areas of love, but how did he love people on a day-to-day basis? And I came up with a really short list. When we see that love is patient. As he discipled his 12 disciples and others who followed him, he was patient with them, and they were slow learners. Jesus was painting for them a kingdom picture. And they struggled with understanding this kingdom picture. They were slow, but Jesus was patient with them. Jesus was constantly interrupted by strangers, and yet he was always helpful to them. He didn't know who they were, but they came to him with all kinds of needs, and he would stop, and he would help them, and he would listen to them. Jesus had antagonists. And love means that he engages those antagonists. The easy thing to do when those who are opposing you or spreading rumors about you would be to pull away from them and then spread rumors about them. But instead, Jesus engaged them in dialogue, and we see that Jesus was forgiving. When he's dying on a cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So those are just day-to-day things that we see in the life of Jesus. He has a self-sacrificial love, yes, but he's patient. He's engaging, he's helpful, he's forgiving. And then John says, this is the new command to love one another. You love each other the way that Jesus loved you. This kind of love is not about emotion. It's not about an emotional feeling where you just feel good and people are nice to you, so it's easy to be nice back to them. Now, there will be some emotions mixed in, but this kind of love is a matter of the will. You know, Jesus was determined to love us, no matter what, no matter how people treated him, he was still determined to love. So when John says this is a new command, that's how it's new. It's new and the the emphasis has changed. And the way we love people is we love people the way that Jesus loved humanity. But in verse 9 and verse 11 of chapter 2, he uses this word hate. It's a strong word. He says, you know, if you hate you claim you're walking in the light, but yet you hate a brother or sister, then you're actually in the darkness. And then in verse 11, he says, if you hate a believer, then you're in the darkness, and the darkness has blinded you. So what does this word hate mean? If I, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if I were to ask you, do you hate anybody? Most of us would probably say no. We, we may not like many people, but, you know, we don't hate anyone. And there may be somebody out here today that really does struggle with hate. And if that's your struggle, then today's a good day to repent of that and to move forward with your life. But a dictionary definition of what hate is, is to feel intense or passionate dislike towards someone. So we may not think that we hate someone, but, but we probably all struggled with having a pretty intense dislike towards someone. And John says, if you hate, you're not in the light. Hate 
creates distance from people, but love brings you closer. Hate makes us uncomfortable around someone, so we push them away, but love brings you closer. You know, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled, and then come back and offer your gift. So love brings you closer, but hate creates distance. And there's another word that I think is in the hate family, and this this word contempt. And that's a, a feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving scorn. So contempt is another one of those strong words. If you feel contempt towards someone, that's a toxic emotion. You know, marriage counselors will tell you that that is a, a leading cause of divorce when one spouse feels contempt for another spouse. But in just personal relationships, if you have contempt or you have hatred towards someone, you're creating distance. Uh, a few weeks ago, I did a sermon uh, on Second Kings, looked at the relationship between Elijah and Elisha, and I told you our story of our time as missionaries in Rwanda, Africa. And a part of that story, uh, the whole story, was a scooter wreck story that happened when I was driving a scooter, it was a motorized scooter, it's kind of like a motorcycle, but you don't have to switch gears. My wife was pregnant. We had this accident and told you that story. But what I didn't tell you was there's actually another scooter wreck story. Um, So if you ever become a missionary in Rwanda, just don't buy a scooter because bad things happen. But but one day, we were there working with these street kids, the ministry called Peace House Ministries. So these kids that have been rescued from the streets, lived most of their lives in the garbage dump or on the streets, had been rescued and were now living in a home, had a house parent with them. And this was part of why we were there. We were working with these street boys. And I would do a Bible study with them every Wednesday. And, you know, they don't speak English. And they didn't have many copies of a Bible in their own language, Kenyan Rwandan. So I would go to their house, borrow their Bible, type it up on the computer so they could, everybody could see the text all together. And one night on a Tuesday evening, I got on my scooter and I rode down the side of a mountain to where they were living and I went in real quick to borrow the Bible. Now, every time I show up on the scooter, these street boys thought it was really cool. And they always asked if they could drive it around or if they could ride with me. And I always said no because it's too dangerous. But this day, I made a mistake because I was just running in real quick and running back out. I left the keys in the ignition. And so when I was coming back out, I don't know how well you can see, but this boy in the orange shirt, his name is Olivier, he was sitting on the bike and had turned it on and looked at me and smiled, and I waved no like that. And as soon as I did it, he pulled back on the throttle, and that thing had a lot more power than he was expecting. And I could quickly see, even though he thought he knew what he was doing, he didn't know what he was doing, and that thing took off on him. And he was wobbling, and you know these are dirt roads with potholes everywhere. He hit a bump in the road, and he flew off the bike. And the bike flew on top of him. And I'm over here probably 20 or 30 yards away, and I can hear him screaming in pain. So I ran over to him. The bike was on top of him, and, uh, you know, fuel was dumping out all over him. And I picked it up off of him, and his leg was broken. And so I quickly called for some of these other boys to go get the house parent to come over there to help because we were going to have to get him out of there, get him to a hospital. But I mentioned a few weeks ago that every time there's some sort of accident, a crowd would gather. So within a minute, all the neighbors, everybody was surrounding us, and this boy is laying on the ground with a broken leg, screaming in pain, 
And about four or five older adult males who had already been drinking a little too much that evening started laughing at him. He's screaming in pain and they're laughing. So I'm kind of disturbed. I'm like, this is strange. You know, usually you see a kid that's hurt, you respond in helpful ways. And then one of the men stepped forward and grabbed his leg that was broken and started yanking on it. And so my first reaction was to protect him. So I just leaned in and I kind of hit his arms and I grabbed that guy and I pushed him back. And then somebody came from behind me and pushed me and it got really physical really fast. And thankfully when the house parents showed up, things kind of broke up. We got the kids some help. And I was scared for a number of reasons. One is, you know, I mentioned I didn't want to ever go to a Rwandan hospital. I also didn't want to go to a Rwandan jail either. So I wanted to make sure, you know, things didn't get too physical. But I went home that night. You know, we got the kids some help. Um, I went home and I was still, you know, shaking from the whole event. And not just because it got physical, not just because it was scary and because his leg was broken, but because of the way those men reacted. How could they just laugh at him? How could they hurt him worse? So the next day, it was really disturbing me. I asked one of the other missionaries, I told him the story, and I was like, why did they respond the way that they did? What in the world is going on here? And he reminded me. He said, remember, we, we're living in a post-genocide nation. So not that long ago, these older men participated in one of the worst acts in human history. Where almost a million people were murdered. And they either witnessed it, survived it, or they participated in it. There wasn't enough jail space to send all the people who committed acts of murder to jail, so some of them are just walking the streets. He said whether they witnessed it, survived it, or participated in it, they're so immersed in a culture of hate and violence that you kind of become numb, you become callous to it. He said so a boy breaking his leg compared to what they've seen and what they've experienced, that's nothing to them. And so it's easy to look at a culture like that and be like, well, that's sad. You see so much hate, but you don't even realize what is hate anymore. But then I look at our own culture, and and Dwayne talked about this a little bit in his communion thoughts this morning. You know, why do we live in a world where we set up memorials outside of a high school? Because another week goes by, and we hear another story of another school shooting Or you watch the news and you hear more stories of shootings or murder or people that are fighting in violence and we see racial tension and political hatred. We see some churches that exist to spread God's hate. There's all that kind of stuff going on in our culture. And our response to that sometimes is just to ignore it because it can really get you down. But as I've studied through 1 John... And how over and over when he talks about love, when he writes about love, he follows it with hate. Because John felt it was important that we have a firm grasp on what hate is if we're really going to love other people. And we're so immersed in hate in our own culture that I wonder if, for one, we've actually become numb to it. Oh, that's just another story of another bad thing that's happened. Or I wonder if in some small ways we've participated in it and not even realized that we've done that. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 12, We must not be like Cain, 
who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So John reminds us of Genesis chapter 4 early on in human history. Right away we see anger, we see evil, we see murder. Verse 13, do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We can't ignore it. He said, it's, it's obvious, the world will hate you. you, you know, there's, we can only ignore it for so long, but then he says in verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another, but whoever does not love abides in death. Verse 15, all who hate a brother or sister are murderers. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. So it's like he takes a turn when he's talking about hate. He uses Cain as an example, and he's talking about love, but then he's also talking about how, but if you hate, he said, then you're a murderer. So you may be thinking, well, yeah, maybe I've hated someone, but I haven't murdered anybody. But I think what John is alluding to is that hate is, it comes from within. Again, I'll reference Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus, six different times in Matthew 5, he says, you've heard it said, but I say. That's when he says, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say, if you're even angry with someone. So Jesus takes the emotion of anger, and he puts it on the same level as hate and murder, and John is doing the same thing. Anger turns into hate. And even inwardly turns into murder, right? And those are strong warnings. And again, it's easy probably for you and I to say, well, at least that's not us. It's sad that that's what goes on in the world around us. But psychologists have documented the fact that even normal, nice, loving people have small levels of hate built within their lives. And they call it heart triggers, And heart triggers are these emotions that we experience that create distance, that push people away. And as time goes, these emotions build, and it builds and builds towards hate. Some of those heart triggers are politics. You just look on social media. If somebody has a different political view than you do, you don't like that person. That person's different. That person's wrong. And then what happens is you start to create more and more distance, and hate builds. Same thing with habits and lifestyles. This is something small. It seems simple. You look at somebody's diet or their choice of where they're going to send their kids to school and different lifestyles, different habits, that creates distance. That's a heart trigger. Hygiene. If somebody has different hygiene than you do, they smell different than you smell, you know, you start to create distance. People's appearance, Right? Whether or not you find somebody attractive or not. You know, whether or not somebody is, has tattoos or body piercings or the way that they dress. These are heart triggers that create distance and through time, if they're unchecked, it builds and builds to hate. We're constantly sizing each other up. Another heart trigger is demographics, nationality, you know, race, religion. If it's different, we don't know what to do with that. Social skills, if somebody has laughs too loud or, you know, like that Seinfeld episode, if somebody's a close talker and you just, you don't like certain social skills about someone, well, then just keep your distance from that person. 
And then just someone's personal history or moral failures. There's all these different heart triggers that psychologists will say create distance. And through time, when our hearts are triggered because of these different things that are differences, it builds towards hate. So we may not be participating in the things that we see, these big acts of violence. But I think John is warning us That if we really want to love, we have to have a firm grasp on hate and not participate in it. You know, as a church here at Pine Tree, we are, we have these seven commitments and we're committed to being a loving family and we're also committed to sharing the love of Jesus, the local community around us. We're committed to that. And if we really want to be this loving family that loves our community, we have to be willing to erase all traces of hate. In chapter 4, that's where we left off last week, you know, chapter 4, verse 7 and following, he talks a lot about how God is love, that's his nature, God's love precedes everything else. And in verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. But then he goes back to hate. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, that those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. So John writes, if you hate someone, a brother or sister, then how can you love God? God is unseen. You know, that's a topic that he comes to, uh, that he goes back to a few different times throughout this letter. That God, physically, we don't see Him. So if we see human beings and we can't love them or we hate them, then how can we love God who is unseen? Dorothy Day is quoted in saying, We love God only as much as the person we love the least. We love God only as much as the person we love the least. You think she was influenced by John's writings. So I think John's telling us, love the difficult people. You know, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke 6, when he talks about love for enemies, he says, it's easy to love people who love you. Even the pagans and tax collectors do that. That's an easy thing to do. But instead, we should love difficult people, love people who don't want to be loved. Like, we should earn a reputation for being a people who are so loving because we receive that love from God. In chapter 1, in the intro of John, we read a little bit of this last week. He says, we can't help but declare, but to declare to you what we have seen and heard. He said, we've seen it, we've heard it, we even touched it. And he's talking about the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. You know, John was one of the original 12, so he was with Jesus in his ministry. They touched the scars of the resurrected Jesus And he says, I can't help but tell you what we've seen and heard. And then in chapter 4 and verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God. So again, the theme of God is unseen. Even though he, John, as an apostle, saw Jesus in the flesh, none of the people that he's writing to all these generations later have actually seen Jesus or seen God. But he says, if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. 
If we create a culture of love and we start to eliminate any of those heart triggers, those traces of hate that create distance, then we'll begin to share the love of God to our community. We'll make God's love visible. People don't see God, but they see us and they see the way that we treat each other. You know, back in 2014, there was that big Ebola scare in West Africa. And there were a lot of medical professionals, doctors who had, because of love, went over to West Africa and risked getting sick themselves to help these people. And Ebola was killing lots of people. You probably remember the story of Dr. Kent Brantley, who had to come back to the U.S. and had Ebola, and it was just this big, scary event. But what you might not know is that a lot of the people from West Africa were superstitious. And they were being taught that these health professionals were not there to help, but they were there to spread this disease. So there was this large distrust. And you had protesters outside of the hospitals claiming they're going to burn the hospitals down. You had family members breaking into the hospital and taking their family members away from the hospital. Their family members who had Ebola, the place that they needed to be because they thought that instead of getting help, that these people were there to make it worse. So the very people who were there to help them had to earn the trust of these West Africans. So they had to change the way they perceived them. So not only were they there to help out of love, but they had to work tirelessly to show the community around them that they can trust them. They had to earn their trust. And I think the church can always learn something from that page, from that book. That not only do we want to love our community and be a loving family and show people that we love them, but that takes time and it takes trust. And we have to build trust within our community. And I think, as has been mentioned, we mention it quite often, ministries like Caring and Sharing. That communicate to the community, we're not only we're here to help you, but we're here for the long haul. That begins to earn the trust of others. Ministries like Highway 80, if you're involved in that. You know, just in our local community, we put love into action. Because John says in chapter 3, and verse 17 and 18, If you have the world's goods, and you do nothing to help somebody in need, you have no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? So let us not love with words or speech but in action and in truth. John warns us about the dangers of hate and being immersed in a culture that has a lot of hate. And if you have hate in your heart, he says the love of God cannot be in you. So maybe that's something that you need to repent of this morning. In just a moment, we're going to have shepherds that are around this building who will pray for you. You can come up front and we'll pray for you up here. Maybe hate is something that you need to repent of. But I can tell you one big message that John has for us is to love people, to love each other, to love the world the way that God loves the world. Not just the people that are easy to love, but love the difficult people. And in doing so, we will make God visible to the world around us. If you have any need this morning, You can come up front, you can grab a shepherd, but let's stand up and continue our song service.